Welcome once again to Searching the Scriptures radio broadcast. We do appreciate you listening in again today as we look into the Word of God. I'm Pastor Travis Alltop, and as always, it is a privilege and an honor to have an open Bible before me and another opportunity to expound the Word of God. Our prayer as a church, and my prayer as a pastor is, that these Bible lessons that we conduct here on this program would be helpful to you, and those of you that are listening and taking notes or paying attention, that you would draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and know what it is to walk with him through this wicked world we currently are residing in. And also we pray, of course, that those who are lost, who might be listening in, will see their great need, will come under conviction, and call out to the Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, and pass from death to life. Now this week we're going to be in Acts chapter 24. I'd ask you to turn there, the 24th chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to look into a, uh, an event that took place in the Apostle Paul's life, that really uh, I'm envious when I see this situation that God gave, this opportunity that God gave to Paul. I wish we all could experience this on a regular basis. Now, Paul, of course, is imprisoned at this point in the narrative here in the book of Acts, and he is uh, being held because of what he believed and what he had been preaching. There's some confusion over what he's done wrong, and there was a governor that was ruling at the time. His name was Felix. And so here in Acts chapter 24, look with me in verse 24. The scripture says this, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And so the preacher is in jail for what he believes, and he is called for by the governor. The governor calls for him, and he wants to hear about the faith in Christ. What a glorious opportunity for any Christian uh, you know, it's amazing when you see the opportunities that God gives us, and we ought to be looking for those opportunities all the time because we are ambassadors for another world. Did you know one of the greatest responsibilities that we as born-again believers have is to tell the world uh, the glorious gospel, the good news from a far country that Jesus Christ has come down, born of a virgin, uh, God manifest in the flesh, lived a sinless, holy life, and then sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God, and now taketh away the sin of the world, and those that will receive him pass from death to life. It's glorious news. I had a guy tell me recently who he's unsaved, and he was talking to me. He said, well, you know, I know that, you know, your crowd, you guys like to recruit people to your church. And I think that's so interesting. Now, that's the way a lost man thinks, recruit. Um, I don't recruit anybody. Uh, in fact, my job is to throw the lifeline. The gospel is a life preserver, and we're to throw the lifeline every chance we get. I really doubt that anybody who was uh, in the waters or in those lifeboats after the Titanic sank, when the Carpathia hit the horizon and showed up about 4 and 5 o'clock that morning and began picking up survivors out of those lifeboats, I hardly, I hardly think anybody in the lifeboats said, boy, <clears throat> look what Car uh, old, the Carpathia is doing. They're recruiting passengers to their ship. No, there wasn't no recruiting going on. There was rescue going on, and people were appreciative. How can I? who've been delivered from the wrath to come, saved from my sins, washed in the blood of Christ, given eternal life, and reconciled back to my Creator. How can I, who's experienced such a glorious transformation, how can I, who've been saved from my sins and born again, how can I not tell others about this wonderful salvation? Not only does it make sense to tell others, but we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Second Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors and we have a ministry, and it's a word ministry. Be ye reconciled to God 
You say, oh, what's an ambassador do? He speaks for another country. Let me ask you and challenge you today. When was the last time you spoke up for Jesus Christ? Now, notice I didn't say when was the last time you invited someone to church. Uh, that's a cop-out sometimes. Nothing wrong with inviting people to church. Praise the Lord. Maybe you can get someone to come and listen to your preacher. If your preacher will preach enough gospel, that person can come under conviction. But what I'm saying is every one of us, not just the pastors and missionaries, not just the evangelists, but every born-again believer, those of you who are saved, who profess the name of Jesus Christ, who listen are listening to the sound of my voice, every one of you, and myself included, every one of us, have a great responsibility and, might I add, a great privilege to lift up the name of the Savior of the world and to lift up the glorious news that a Savior has died and suffered and that he will save sinners. What a privilege. But how few Christians ever attempt to win others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, right here, for preachers and for those of you who are concerned about winning souls, you can't help but uh, salivate when you read this situation. Here's Paul in prison. The governor calls for him. He sends for him. Why did he send for him? He sent because he wanted to hear him concerning the faith in Christ. And let me just say this. The people who get saved by our witness, when God uses us to tell the, the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the people who get saved must come to a place where they are listening to what we have to say. You know something? The Bible says very plainly in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing. A man has to hear the truth before he can respond to the truth. Faith cometh by hearing. What do people need to hear to have faith that will save? Hearing by the word of God. They've got to hear the scriptures. They have to listen. Uh, I heard of a story of Dr. Walter Wilson, a great soul winner from yesteryear. He one time was called, he was a medical doctor, and a lady called him at his office, and she said, I want to come, and I want to know the way of salvation. And he said, well, come on down. So she made an appointment and walked into his office and sat down. And Dr. Wilson said that she began to uh, explain about all the heartaches and troubles of her life, all the afflictions she had been through, all the uh, unfairness of life, and how many different churches she had been to, and why she was baptized in this church, and why she was this and that and the other. And he said, I never interrupted. He said, I just let her empty her heart out before me. He said, but she talked for an hour and 20 minutes telling me her whole life story. And he said, when she was done, the doctor in his wisdom, and he had a ton of it, he said, well, I'm, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing all that with me. He said, but if that's all, he said, I'll go ahead and get busy. I've got a lot to do today. And she looked shocked and she said, well, wait a minute. She says, I, I want to know the way of life. I came here to find out how to be saved. And he looked at her and he said, well, the Bible says faith cometh by hearing. And he said, you're going to be saved by grace through faith, but you have to hear what God has to say. And he said, for the last hour and 20 minutes, you've been talking and you haven't heard anything. He said, if you're through talking, he said, I'd be glad to explain to you the way of life, but you'll have to hear it from the word of God. And can I tell you something? You can't out argue somebody. You'll never argue someone into the kingdom of God. You'll never argue someone into receiving Jesus Christ. At some point, they have to listen. And the word of God has got to stop their mouth so that they listen. I've said it before, and I've seen it before. Some men can't get saved because they can't stop talking long enough to get saved. Amen and amen. You'll have to stop your excuses. You'll have to stop all of your silly arguments that you think you have. And you'll have to listen to what God says. And you say, well, how can I hear what God says? You'll hear it through a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus, 
a faithful preacher, and you can hear the voice of God through this old book you have that we're reading from this morning, this old authorized version Bible. Now, notice what it says. He sent for Paul. What a blessing. And it says, and he heard him concerning what? The faith in Christ. So the next verse is going to tell us how Paul witnessed to this man. What did Paul talk about? Well, you know something? Look at verse 25, and we're going to find out how Paul explained, quote, the faith in Christ. Verse 25 says, and as he, speaking of the apostle Paul, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Now that is an instructive verse. In fact, this verse is just, it's, it's on my heart today. Um, I've been preparing and studying this verse, preparing this, a Sunday school lesson from this verse. And I can't help but be reminded of how deceived the large majority of church members are. I'm talking about professing Christians across the country. You know, we have an adversary. It's the devil. The Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices. The Bible says that our adversary walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And you know something? One of his great uh, tools in his toolbox is deception. And his deception, you must be on your guard and you have to be on your toes to catch the deception that the devil throws our way. You say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus Christ said this about the devil. In John chapter 8, in verse 44, you can look it up sometime. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us some instruction and some very important warnings about our adversary, the devil. Jesus Christ says that the devil is a liar and the father of it. So he's the one that started this trend of lying and deception. And if you recall, he deceived Eve in the garden with a lie. But now here's the subtle thing about his, about his, what he told her. If you'll study Genesis chapter three, verses one through five, you will find out that the the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. So what did he do? He went to Adam's wife, first of all. He didn't go to Adam, the original creation. He went to the secondary creation, the weaker vessel, the wife. Now, if that bothers anybody listening today, I'm sorry. I didn't write the Bible. I just quoted some portions of Scripture to you there. But he went to the weaker vessel. He went to the wife. And he told Eve this. He said, he said five things in all. Four of them were correct. One of them was an out-and-out lie. So he coats his lies and his deception with truth from the Bible. And if you don't think the devil knows the Bible, and he knows it well, then you don't know anything about the devil, because I will remind you that when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, was here on this earth 2,000 years ago, his first test was from the devil, and the devil came and tempted him in th uh, three different times. And every time the devil tempted our Lord Jesus Christ, he would quote Scripture to him. He would say, it is written. But Jesus Christ would always pick up on the misquote and quote the Bible back to him. The devil is classic. He is known for his deception. He is subtle and crafty. And he will take the Bible and twist it just enough to deceive the average Christian because they're not paying attention. And I want to tell you that most Christians today, let me ask you this question right here. If you were sent for, like Paul was sent for here in our text, if the governor or a friend, a relative, a neighbor sent for you and wanted to hear about the faith in Christ, let me ask you a question. What would you tell them? 
You know, people talk all the time about having assurance and knowing that they're saved and knowing if they're saved. Well, I'm going to tell you something. One great way to check yourself is to ask yourself this. If I was in the room of a dying man, if I was standing by the bedside of someone who was dying and about to go into eternity, what instructions would I give them from the word of God that would bring glad tidings of good things to their heart and would give them the opportunity to pass out of this life into eternity and go home to heaven. Do you have good news like that? You see, if your good news is, well, uh, you need to live the golden rule and do unto others as you have them do unto you, well, that's not good news to a dying man. That's not good news. That doesn't tell him how to get his sins removed. It doesn't tell him how to be saved. If you come in and tell someone, do the best you can, well, that's not going to bring any comfort to him because he already knows when he's getting down. When people get ready to die, they get more honest. And when the death rattles in their throat, they'll come clean with a lot of things because they know they're fixing to transition out of this world into the next, and they're terrified in their heart, and they should be, that they're going to have to answer for the deeds done in the body in this life. But telling someone to do the best they can is no comfort. That's not good news because the dying person knows that they haven't done the best they could. Many times they've done less than their best. Many times they've out and out done wrong and sinned against God, and they know this. My question to you, Christian friend, those of you who profess to be saved, is if you were sent for and someone wanted to hear from you about, quote, the faith in Christ, what would you tell them? Have you got enough truth residing in your heart? Have you been delivered from the wrath to come? Do you know the purpose of Jesus Christ's entrance into this world as a man? Do you know what his purpose was when he died on the cross and rose from the dead? Do you have answers? Can you explain all of that? You see, the devil has done a masterful job at deceiving the church as a whole over the last 50 to 60 years. You say, well, how did he, how did he do that? Well, he twisted the presentation of the gospel. And I see gospel tracks. I hear it on the Christian radio. I see it on Christian TV. When preachers get up to preach, you see it in books. And here's what it is. And you're not even going to believe it. But the average American has been taught to present the faith as it is in Jesus Christ with the following catchphrase. They say, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's not the way any New Testament preacher or writer ever presented Jesus Christ. First of all, it's very misleading. The reason we like that approach is because we can start with the love of God, which is not offensive to sinful man, and we can start focusing back on them by saying God has a wonderful plan for your life. And so it's a, it becomes more of a salesman-type pitch than it actually is the truth as it is in Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. Now, stay with me. Some of you are doubting this even right now, but think of it this way. What if a lost man came to your church and you told him God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? If you'll come and give your heart to Jesus, then uh, uh, you'll know the wonderful love of God and you'll, he'll, you'll see this wonderful plan unfold. Well, to a lost man, the wonderful plan means I'm going to get the best job. I'm going to have a lot of money. I'm going to be able to take great vacations. I'm going to have great health the rest of my life. I'm never going to have any marital problems. Never going to have any financial problems. And I'm going to live a fun, uh, sin, uh, sinful existence on this earth. That's what a lost man thinks that means. You tell him something like that and try to present the gospel that way, it's very misleading. Because right after you present that, the first time he visits our churches, then we start taking prayer requests. Pray for brother so-and-so. 
His wife's still in the hospital, and it doesn't look like she's going to get out anytime soon. He's struggling, having a real hard time with that. Now, these are people that came to Jesus, you know, because God loved them, and they had a wonderful plan for their life. So this sinner hears him talking about this man who hadn't been in church for four years because his wife suffers from Alzheimer's and is having serious physical troubles, and she's in the hospital for months at a time. The next prayer request comes in and they pray for some faithful gospel preacher who's uh, battling cancer right now and probably not going to make it. Another hand is raised and they say, don't forget the so-and-so family. Their house burnt down last week and they lost two children in that fire. We sure need to pray for them and their pastor because they're going through a hard time. Another guy raises his hand and says, please keep praying for me. I still haven't found a job. Does that sound like a wonderful plan? Now, listen, I know what you Christians are thinking. You're saying, but it's wonderful to know Jesus. Yes, I know that. But we give the sinner the impression that God's going to make their life happy and better. And the truth of the matter is, that's not their first and foremost need. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross because you were sad and needed to be made happy. No, Jesus Christ died because you're a rebel against God and because you're an outlaw and you're a willful sinner. We've somehow or another, the devil has caused the average preacher to turn the gospel around so that the sinner is to be pitied as though that he just can't help himself and bless his heart, God loves him anyway. You see, it's a, it's a slight difference. It's a slight shift, and yet it's so subtle, but it many times dis, it brings a disconnect to the truth of why Jesus Christ died. Now, let's look. Let's get back to verse 25 here. Let me show you something. Paul is going to give the gospel. Paul's in jail. How about that for a wonderful plan? Stephen witnessed for Jesus Christ and got his brains rocked out. How's that for a wonderful plan? How's this for a promise to Christians? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Or how about this one? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. That's not the world's idea of a wonderful plan. And so you see how uh, that by presenting Jesus Christ to a lost man that way, you're bypassing and short-circuiting the very thing that the gospel uh, was given for. And that is to deliver men from the judgment to come and to make them deal with their sin. So let's see how it's done biblically. Not how it's done psychologically. Not how it's done by Laodiceans. But let's see how it's done by New Testament preachers and apostles. Look with me in verse 25. Paul reasoned of what? Righteousness. That's the first thing he talks about. He didn't talk about the love of God. He didn't talk about a wonderful plan for Felix's life. In fact, if you want, if you had talked to Felix, he was, uh, history says he was a, a great indulger in drunkenness and whoremongering. To him, that's the best thing that can happen for a sinner. He thinks, hey, I'm enjoying my sin. The Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. In fact, the Bible talks about that the, uh, the wicked many times are prosperous and they have more than heart could desire. They do well financially. You know, if you go to a, a sinner who's doing well financially and enjoying all of his sin, he's not really concerned about God's love or wonderful plan. He's thinking, I've got a good plan. Do you see how that doesn't appeal to some people? Because sinners are enjoying their sin. If sin wasn't enjoyable, it wouldn't be so dangerous and it wouldn't be such a plague on society. But there's pleasure, the Bible says, in sin for a season. So it's not about the wonderful plan that we need to present to these people because that's not really being fair. It's very deceptive and almost a salesman-type pitch of the gospel. No, here's where the Apostle Paul, who's our pattern, here's where he starts. He looks at Felix 
and he begins to reason of righteousness. That means he's going to talk about what is right according to what God says is right. You see, righteousness, many times in our society, in this crazy, perverted society we're living in, righteousness is adjustable. They adjust it to uh, whatever the situation may be. Uh, They call it situation ethics and all this other baloney. And, uh, you know, you can't ever say anything bad about this or judge that or this or the other. But the truth of the matter is God has given us a standard. That standard is most clearly seen at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. How's this for a standard of righteousness? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That means that God, the God of the Bible, is to be number one. You say, well, I, I only believe in the God of the Bible. Well, maybe not. If you serve yourself before you serve God, you have another God in front of him, namely that God is yourself. The Bible says there in Philippians chapter 3 that for some people, they serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their, their belly is their God. The second commandment in the law of God, we're talking about a standard of righteousness, and undoubtedly this is what Paul brought up before Felix. The second commandment says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You say, well, I don't make statues. I don't worship false gods. Well, the truth of the matter is most Americans have no idea who the God of the Bible is. They make up a God. It's a God that they have created in their own imagination. That's why when you read editorials in rags like the uh, Advocate Messenger, it'll say things like, well, you know, I don't know why these preachers preach such judgmental things and such scary things as damnation because my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, I know your God wouldn't because your God doesn't exist except between your ears. Most people in those editorials will say, well, to me, God is, and they go on in, in explaining. And sinners are famous for making a God in their own image. It's a God that's frustrated with others, but uh, a God who's okay with what they sin and what they do against the law of God. So to make a a graven image is to create another God. And many people do this in their own imaginations, especially here in politically corrected, neutered America. The third commandment, talking about a standard of righteousness. This is what God says is righteous. The third commandment says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever taken God's name and used it as a curse word? That's called blasphemy in the Bible. You can go on, honor thy father and thy mother, which you haven't done all the days of your life. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And someone says, well, I've never taken anybody's life. But you see, the law goes more than just outward. It examines more than just the outward actions of men. God, who sees the heart, gets on the inside. And he says that hatred and anger without a cause is the same thing. It's counted as murder. The seventh commandment of the law says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet Jesus said, If a man look with lust upon a woman, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So you can commit adultery in your heart. The eighth commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. And somebody says, Well, I've never never broken into a building and stolen anything. Well, that's good, but you can steal a lot of other ways. Some of you have lived such a rough uh, life and brought so much shame upon your parents, you've cut years off their life. You've stolen from them. The ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness, means lying and deception is wrong. And yet people do that all the time. They lie to themselves, they make up excuses, and they lie to one another. The tenth commandment says, thou shalt not covet, and covetousness is as idolatry, brings us right back to the first commandment in the first table of the law. My point is this, that's the standard of righteousness, and here's what you've figured out if you've listened for the last five minutes. If that's God's standard of righteousness, there ain't a one of us that has perfect, spotless righteousness. Because James 2.10 tells us that if a man keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. 
And so this is what Paul, this is how Paul starts his gospel presentation. He starts it with righteousness. Then it says he reasoned of temperance to Felix. Uh, Felix is known in history as a man who was completely out of control. He had no self-control, and that's what temperance is. So this man was just indulging every fleshy desire that he ever wanted. He was a whoremonger. He was a drunk. He was a murderer. He was a manipulator. He just is, his flesh is out of control. That's why people become addicted to things like drugs, things like drunkenness, gambling, pornography, <clears throat> whoremongering. Those are addictive sins because the flesh begins to be completely out of control and they're pretty soon they're controlled and in bondage to these sins. The Bible talks about the drunk over there in Proverbs chapter 23. And after all that he goes through and all the difficulties that that alcohol presents to him, it says, when I awake, Proverbs 23, verse 35, it says, when I awake, I will seek it yet again. That's called bondage. Why? No temperance in the lost man. No self-control. You can't resist. You have no power against your sin. It controls you. And Paul reasoned of this. And then thirdly, Paul reasoned, oh, here it comes, judgment to come. You know what? The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now listen, those, that is the way to approach the gospel. And I haven't even given the gospel yet. This man wanted to hear about the faith in Christ. Why does a man need Jesus Christ? What, what, what did Jesus Christ do? Why does it matter that he died on the cross? How does that affect sinners or the world around? Well, when you reason with them about the righteousness of the law and the fact that they've not kept the law, so therefore there is none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that awakes their conscience to an alarming truth. They have no righteousness, they have no self-control, and they're fixing to head to judgment. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And that Bible says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged out of those things written in the books. Now you know what that right there does? It says it caused Felix to tremble. When Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Now listen, is there any good news? Yes, behold, we bring you glad tidings of good things. Paul didn't only reason of righteousness, temperance, and judgment, but according to Acts chapter 17, he also reasoned of this. He reasoned that it was needful that Jesus Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Now that's the gospel, that's the good news. When you see that you're a lawbreaker and that you're going to be called into account one day for your sinful life and you realize you have no hope of passing that judgment, suddenly Calvary becomes reasonable, logical, and the greatest blessing that's ever coursed through your mind. The fact that the sinless Son of God came down and became a man, lived a sinless, spotless, holy life. The Bible says he was holy, harmless, and undefiled and separate from sinners. And this sinless man went to a bloody cross and died a cruel, agonizing public death and shed out his precious divine blood to wash you clean of your sins and to make a payment for your ungodliness. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. And on the third day, the Son of God came forth from the dead, broke free of the grave, and walked out and ascended back to heaven. And the good news today is this, not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That comes later. 
What you need to know is that you're a rebel and a lawbreaker and a sinner. And if you get what you deserve, if you got justice at the judgment to come, you would be cast into the lake of fire and God would have every right to do it. But my friend, you don't have to go before that judgment and get justice. You can plead for mercy now and come to God on the merits of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and pass from death to life. Listen, friends, when I stand before God at the judgment, I'll not get justice. Praise God. I don't want justice. I want mercy, and I found it in Jesus Christ. There's the love of God. God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that same Savior today says, like he said to Felix, like he's saying to you today, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. May God help you to understand this, Christian Present it in the New Testament way. Sinner friend, come to Christ now. May God help you to understand. Until next week, may the Lord bless you as you serve him.